what? Like, are we all just idiots and Robert M.D. is like the shit? Like... So today we are debuting an episode that we recorded. When did we record that? In like January, early January? Yeah, one of our first episodes. I think it was supposed to be episode two. So yeah. It was. Yeah. Oh, so, so, oh man, this might be a little cringe then. We'll see. <laughs> it's okay. Just here. Just bear with us through it. Okay. Yeah. It'll, it'll be better. <laughs> I promise. Yeah. But it is cool because we do drop a tool. Um, I'm dropping the Rebind Multi-A tool, which I've had pending since we recorded this episode. And I've been wanting to release it. Um, so that'll get released today. And then, um, yeah, we just talk a little bit about blind SSRFs as well. I'm um, not blind SSRFs, headless SSRFs. Um, and, yeah, so should be a pretty good episode. Uh, forgive the audio quality and uh, unrefined speech patterns, which... You know, I like to think have been resolved now. Yeah, no, that was that was way back. We didn't even have nice mics. We didn't yeah, have. Like, I didn't have a dynamic mic then. We we're just like let's let's record this thing. So yeah, but cool. all right. Before we jump into that, let's talk a little bit about. Um, we had some news that we wanted to cover this from this week, from this past week or so. Um, and yeah, Joel, what you got? Yeah, so um, Truffle Security, whoa, they're back <laughs> with XSS every episode, man. <laughs> every episode. Hopefully, hopefully this is the last of the, of the drama. It's not really drama. It's essentially resolution to the drama. So yeah. uh, this actually happened like literally. This was I think this video came out the day that we recorded our last episode, so yeah. we didn't quite get to sneak it in there. Um, but essentially, Truffle Security. For those who don't know, there was a little bit of drama that had went on that that had gone on. They took over XSS Hunter from mandatory, and they released their own version of it uh, that was new and improved. All this kind of stuff. They announced that there was some really interesting stats that they were seeing, some metrics from people who were actually using it, and that raised a lot of red flags within people from the community, being like oh, why are you looking at our data? Why are you looking at the, these metrics? Are you, you know, how are you knowing all this stuff? Are you looking at our payloads? Are you looking where it's popping? All that kind of stuff. Uh, the TLDR is that, no, they weren't. Um, technically, that was always possible with XSS Hunter, even the version from Mandatory. Um, they, Truffle Security did a talk at DEF CON, I think DEF CON 28, so uh, maybe a year, uh, year or two ago. Um, that was basically discussing all of the current problems with XSS, XSS Hunter and all that kind of stuff. Um, and essentially, because of the backlash from the community relating to these metrics that they released, which were anonymized um, when they were pulling these metrics to begin with. However, because of the backlash, they sat down and they added end-to-end -end encryption. They, they were like, okay, this is, this is something that we need to do. This is something that we know has been an issue. Let's just, this is... This is the the flame that ignites the 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 flame under our butt, right? Yeah, dude, I love the video because he's like, "All right, bumping that to the top of the to do list," you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. he just like shows a clip. He just like schedules out like ten days, <laughs> just like sits down yeah. and does it. 
Oh my gosh. So, yeah, no, it's it's sad though too because like like you said, it was originally possible even from the very beginning. Um, you know, with the other XSS hunter and you know, mandatory is a good guy, but you know, they they it's always been there. The capability has always been there. So and it's open source, so it's not like you don't know that. Um, yeah. So yeah, a little bit of an overreaction there, I think, from the community. But I'm glad to see that it spurred the end-to-end -end encryption feature implementation. That's definitely a win. Yeah, 100%. So now uh, all you have to do, just go on XSS Hunter, and you can put a PGP key in there. And any payload that pops, it's going to automatically use that key to encrypt the data that gets sent back. And then only you can decrypt it with your PGP key. So nice. that's, that's uh, good. I think that's a great solution. Um, and it's nice to see them rapidly addressing those concerns from the community and as always if you still aren't sure about it you are aren't feeling great it's totally open source Just host, host your it own yourself instance. go for it like you yeah. know I, I i wonder if if um you know any of those big providers that have explicitly banned it i wonder if they're gonna roll back on that if you are using pgp encryption or whether that's you're still gonna lose your bounty yeah, that's true. I hope it's not like permanent damage, so to speak. Yeah. Because I know there was like some immediate backlash, and and we mentioned that we both saw a couple programs send out um send out messages to hackers and be like, hey, if you're using XSS Hunter, it needs to be a self-hosted version. We don't want it going through, you know, a centralized version, which is kind of a weird stance to take because they didn't have that stance all the while that XSS yeah. Hunter was under mandatory. But whatever. But yeah. Okay. Well, hopefully, hopefully that, yeah, hopefully that gets, gets fixed. It would be nice. It's very convenient. It's a very convenient tool, you know, uh, for all of that. I, I've got, I don't have an XSS Hunter instance set up. I've got a like little Slack ping callback thing that I use for some of these things, but uh, it would definitely be nice to be able to use the hosted version. Yeah, a hundred percent. And, and now that the encryption is there, I think I'll just keep using the hosted version. Yeah. Same. Yeah. Cool. Um, let's see. What uh, you want to talk about here. the Hacker One World Cup real quick? Oh yeah. Okay. So um, Hacker One announced on Twitter, I want to say last week, that uh, the Hacker One World Cup is coming up here soon. Um, and in order to participate in that, if you are interested in that, that is a well, just to give a little context, that is a hacking competition um, that Hacker One holds each year, and uh, you get representatives from each com uh, country, and maybe sometimes multiple representatives, and um, you're hacking together on specific targets this year. This year, it's going to be specific targets. Last year, it was any target and um, accruing points. And then the winners of those competitions get a bunch of awesome perks. Uh, Joel, the cat, man. The, the cat I was is just, just... I was just going to... I wasn't going to address it. <laughs> I, I, every time I see it, it's, it's just... I, I, I get distracted. Um, yeah, no. Uh, so definitely check that out if you're interested. And... Um, the way to do that is we'll put a link down in the description. Um, you go to the brand ambassador program page on hacker one and there will be, there's a list of, uh, ambassadors. Yours truly, Mr. Reiner Raider, Justin Gardner is the one for, uh, Virginia. So, um, if you're in the East coast, feel free to reach out to me and, uh, I'll get you in the right chat. Um, the, we'll be releasing this video on Thursday. Um, the second and rosters are due Friday the third. So fill out the form right away. Um, DM me and I will get back to you as soon as I possibly can. Um, and I, and yeah, uh, hopefully, hopefully we'll have some signups for that. We've got, we've got a full roster already. Um, pretty much, but I think there's some talk of splitting out a, another team. So, uh, definitely don't let that inhibit you from, from checking it out. 
Yeah, we're giving you a lot of runtime. One day, but yeah, one day. So <laughs> yeah. get on it right now. Like we, we have been trying to hype this up it. on Twitter and yeah. retweet it around and stuff. So yeah, if if this is the first time you're hearing about it and something you're interested in doing, make sure to check out the link below or check one of our Twitters. I'm sure it's in there somewhere. Or just um, Google like Hacker One Brand Ambassadors. Yeah, and uh, and it should come up. And just reach out. There are uh, at least in North America. There's four in the U.S. and four in Canada. And I think. Yep each sort of region has uh at least five or six some of them have even more so definitely yeah. reach out if that's something you you want to participate all in. these people should up. have their dms open too so yeah yeah for sure um i know i've signed up i know a bunch of other people uh that we like to hack with have signed up so it u.s is looking strong this yeah, year the man. u.s has, has a pretty strong team it's pretty so. stacked i i know i know that it's like to, to be fair, though, um, for the U.S., like, we have a lot of really strong hackers that I think are going to be hitting it really hard this year. Um, but I think last year it would have been, you know, it was a little bit more skewed towards people that can do wide recon because any program was in scope, right? Um, and so, you know, you've got your hard hitters from, from Canada, Mr. Mr. Today's new, and then um, the other big recon hitters. So I think it, it should be, I think we've got a good shot at it this year from the U.S., yeah, I'm I'm pretty stoked. I remember from the program side, I was seeing a ton of reports last year, and I was like, "What what is this thing that's going on?" So I'm I'm very stoked to get to participate this year. Any uh, any word on uh, whether your company is going to be participating in the? <laughs> I don't. I mean, nobody's reached out to me. So <laughs> okay, all right. So I I so we know so. one target <laughs> is not the not one of the targets. That's we're narrowing it down. Yeah. yeah. All right. What else we got here on the doc? Um, um, yeah, ChatGPT APIs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this is something that we 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 always like to talk about AI stuff. Um, ChatGPT's a, uh, APIs are now out. So mm. I think you probably have seen in some of the mainstream social media apps uh, like Snapchat and Quizlet, and I think TikTok and a bunch of other ones have already ahead of time they've integrated with the ChatGPT APIs to try and increase user engagement, all that kind of good stuff. Wow. Um, so yeah, it's now available to the public and I'm really excited to see what this is going to do. Um, there's always been some unofficial API clients, we'll call them, that, yeah. uh, <laughs> that used uh, the ChatGPT stuff and made it possible for you to script ChatGPT stuff before it was really publicly available. But now uh, it's actually available, the official API is out, and uh, from what I've heard, it's actually not that expensive. So if engineering or development is something that piques your interest go check out the OpenAI blog and maybe code up some cool security tools dang look at this it's like a, a fifth of a cent for 1k tokens wow that's, yeah that's pretty good dang, that's i don't pretty, know pretty what good. one i don't know what one token means if that's like one, one k token or... 1000 tokens i think that's one i think that's one query for one token yeah, I mean, wow. I guess uh, like you know, I, I, at least I envisioned it like those little tokens in the arcade, like you, you know, you put it in, you play the game, sort of vibe. Dude, that's so, awesome. That would be cool. pretty. That'd be pretty sick if it was that cheap. That would be amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. It's really great to see them finally polish out the the product to a point where they're ready to release it to the public for you know like official use. I think we're we're about to dive into a pretty intense AI fueled. Yeah, man era i don't i don't even for sure yeah a lot and, of stuff is going to be using ai now like you mentioned some of these programs that are you know they've or some of these uh companies that they <laughs> i'm already talking about it as in programs <laughs> some of these companies that they that they listed here in this article um we'll link it in the description um 
you know, they've got bug bounty programs, Quizlet, Snap, um, Instacart, you know, some of these, they're, they're definitely out there. Um, so definitely go check those out and see if you can hack any of the uh, AI-related features because it seems like they kind of rushed that feature out to ride the wave. So I bet there's some sketchy stuff there. 100%. And I know we had talked about in the past stuff like prompt injection. Mm -hmm. um, there are some ML-specific bugs, uh, some stuff that's really only going to affect ChatGPT and ChatGPT and AI-driven systems. Mm -hmm. So those are probably a great place to focus your time, especially right now as things are developing. Yeah, it's kind of a new space. So could be a cool take niche. Advantage. Yeah. Like you could, you could be, any of you guys could be the AI Vuln guy. You that's know, true. that's like, true. Are we going to talk about bugs? Uh, Let's see. Uh, you want to you want to pick up one of these reports here? Well, I was going to say because this is reminding me, like w one of my old old reports got uh, got disclosed. Uh, oh, really? A day or two ago. Oh, nice. And it was actually a Web three bug from uh, when is this? Twenty eighteen. March me, 2018. Almost, almost... Uh, Dude, was Web3 even a thing then? Almost five years to the date. Uh, March 9th. So Dang, dude. March, All right. March well, 1st. I wasn't planning on talking about a bug today since we got the other thing, but you, you take this and go with it, man. I, yeah, I, so, I'm, I so I was hear just about thinking, this. like, you know, this is this was, like, very similar kind of timeline. This was, like, yeah. early, early on. Web3 stuff was, like, very new and also very new in Bug Bounty. Um, and this was just a very cool DOS that I had found uh, on the RPC server that ran this wallet. So essentially you could send a JSON RPC call to this server and there was a method in there to reset the server and it was intended to be for development use, but they had it turned on for production. So oh, on the node, reset. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I totally just reset the node. Oh, and no. It was funny because I didn't really understand the impact way back then, but it's funny because I was reading through it again and the for the triager from their side commented it was like i haven't verified this but it looks valid the node is effectively oh down. no <laughs> <laughs> oh no that's so, so bad do you, do you remember how whoops. you came upon, upon this was this just like in the js files or did you like how did you how did you get this yeah i was actually i was looking in the source code for oh the it's RPC. open sourced nice yeah yeah so the rpc okay. server was open source and i was just looking through what methods Jeez, were available so to call see if there was anything you know sensitive or you know basically this right and uh yeah sure enough you could uh you could reset the whole rpc server with just one call unauthenticated like oh my gosh um, yeah very cool but this is just reminding me a lot of sort of where we're about to be with ai right it's we're right on the cusp of a new technology coming in. There's not a lot of reports. People are unfamiliar with it. People are unfamiliar with how to use it in a security context and mm. a hacking context. Yeah. So now is a great time to be that person. Right? Yeah, for sure. Focus it would be really, that. it'd be really cool. They, they show in the, in the article, like this curl, you know, that they do for the whisper API and, and for the, uh, for the chat GPT API. So, I mean, if you could leak, you know, just to give some attack vectors out there, if you could inject into this JSON context that they're talking about here, there's a nested J JSON context, or if you could leak their auth bearer to open AP, uh, uh, open AI, um, maybe even if you could hit different URLs on the api.openai.com scheme or on that, on that, um, domain, you know, via sort of like an SSRF sort of thing, um, that could be really cool as well. So definitely check out those possibilities. Yeah, and just spitballing, it also makes me wonder about context. You know how there's like conversations. Oh yeah, how do they? Yeah. Right. So like, how do, how do they huh. how do they define like this is the end of a conversation and that 
could maybe open up some risk for leaking data from a previous conversation with a different user or something like that. Uh, go, um, to the, so go, go to the go to the explore. Um, go to the blog and so right where it says the request section, there's a response button as well, right next to Python bindings. And then I think there's like a chat ID. This chat C M uh P L I D. I bet I bet it's through that. Interesting. Very, very interesting. So yeah, see I would definitely I'm gonna take go a read look this at API this. docs. Uh, yeah, after this. I'm gonna make note of <laughs> They yeah, literally we're, we're both making <laughs> I know. They literally dumped this API like twenty minutes before we started recording. So yeah, we didn't have time to dive into it too deeply, but it looks it's really super cool. Super cool. But yeah, so if uh, if that's something you're interested in, definitely go check it out. Yeah. All right, sweet. That's a wrap, I think, for um, the first part. Hope you enjoy the episode on Zerf. It was episode two. It was the second episode one we recorded. Two. So be kind. Have um, mercy. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I'll definitely try to keep that tool up for a little while at least. We'll see how long, how much you guys use it. But um, yeah, enjoy the episode. All right, cool. Today we are talking about a super exciting vulnerability type. I, I freaking love this, this vulnerability type. Um, it's pretty rare. It's pretty hard to find. But when you do find it, it's a lot of fun to test for. And, uh, and it can really result in some pretty critical bugs. So Joel, you want to tell the people about it? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, headless browser SSRFs, right? So a lot of times, um, I think you'll see different instances of this in like different applications you might use, whether it be like you're signing a document or you're generating some kind of like custom PDF mm, or something, yeah. right? A lot of times these like custom generation type things, it happens actually within like a web page and then that web page is rendered into a PDF. And the way that it does that is with like a headless browser. So what we mean by that is like it Chrome, but like no Chrome window, yeah. right? So it's like running on the CLI. It like does all the browser stuff without actually showing a browser window. And then you can tell it to, you know, you can orchestrate it to do whatever you want beyond that so you can have it save it as a pdf have it save it as a png have it inject scripts whatever you can mm. you know have it do whatever you want and that gives you a lot of different power right, right. because it's almost like you have like a client right a, a user who's like doing sort of the things that you want so if you could get javascript in there your xss is going to trigger right you don't need them to click on anything and a lot of times those protections are actually a lot lower um, in those headless browsers. Right. So, so for this specific vulnerability, we've got a couple conditions. We've got, we need to find a part of the application where they are generating some sort of PDF or generating like a screenshot of like a specific file and, or something like that. Right. And then, um, in, in order to, to get the SSRF in, in order to incur the vulnerability, we need to find some way to inject HTML or, uh, ideally inject uh, JavaScript into that, that headless browser page. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So that, 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 that's a little bit of a, of a reach. I mean, it, it, it seems like a little bit of a, of a far-fetched uh, vuln type, but it does, it is out there and I've found it and you found it. And uh, it, as we'll see later today, Fisher has found it. Um, and so, yeah, it's definitely one to be, one to be on the lookout. So um, how do we, how do we go about, you know, testing for this? I mean, are we just, are we just looking for fields that are injected into the PDF file? And then we just kind of try to inject into those, you know, as far as an XSS goes like, like we normally would, or how does that work? 
Yeah, so like I mentioned, like a lot of the time this happens in like PDF generation type stuff. Um, I believe um, the Homsec actually yeah. has um, uh, either a talk or presentation or something about this. Um, so we can maybe leave a link for that somewhere yeah, in, the, in the podcast description. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so a lot of times it's, it's for like generating a PDF. And I think um, it's, I, I guess to a bug bounty hunter, it feels like kind of like obvious almost, right? But like when you, when you see it, but generally it's going to be something that like, is seems to be generated right um you know what i mean whereas like normally you i mean if it was just normal html you could just load the html right, right. there's no reason to not give that to the user mm-hmm. so like they're generating it to like a document or a pdf or something like for a reason mostly because they want you to either download or sign something yeah. or like they need like a copy of it or something and, like that and usually it's, it's and a lot of times you'll you'll actually see you know on that note you'll see actually HTML passed into these endpoints, right? Like, you know, you'll look at the the HTTP request and there will actually be like, you know, you're less than, greater than, like a bold tag or something like that in that that HTML as a that's being passed into the the endpoint as a parameter, right? Right. Yeah. So that's a great way to test it is just like start with HTML tags and see if you can get like either HTML injection or, or an XSS. Um, the XSS might not be visible because like yeah. it might not render the alert. Right. So like start with HTML, mm. see if you get HTML injection, just like with like XSS yeah. or anything else. Right. If, if you're fuzzing fields. So start with those payloads. If you see it like return like a PDF, for example, or like an image. Mm um with like your bold html element like in there then that's like a great sign that you should like start poking and prodding at that maybe try and identify what headless browser they're using um like the specific version or the type like the what piece of software it is specifically and then you can you know take a look at the source code take a look at other vulnerabilities that have affected that see if you can exploit it nice yeah no that that makes a lot of sense and and to your point you know we don't actually like like normal um, XSS, we don't have access to the, or unlike normal XSS, we don't actually have access to like the DOM that's being rendered, right? So we can't just look, you know, right click view source and see where the payload's being injected. We actually need sort of a visual, visual feedback for this, right? So we probably want to try to use something that's going to give, you know, like an H1 tag or something that even might break out of other tags that might, you know, where the data might be rendered and, and give us something, some sort of visual feedback on whether we're, we're breaking out of uh, out of a tag or out of a, a parameter, right? Yeah, yeah. This is one of those instances where, like, uh, having like a malformed payload might actually be kind of useful, just because you can see like some of the mess. You know what I mean? Sort sort of start to show up, and then you'll be like, "Oh, wait a second! Like, this might be a good opportunity." And then then you can like fuzz it further and you know poke and prod. Um, you actually have a tool that's relevant to this, though. Yeah, right? man. Okay, cool. So I can talk about that a little bit now. Um, yeah. So essentially. <laughs> the whole reason we did this episode in the first place was because Fisher hit me up the other day and was like, yo, dude, I've got this headless browser, uh, SSRF. And it, it was pretty much just exactly the scenario that we just talked about, which was, um, like, you know, it, there's a, there's a parameter that's being passed into, into the endpoint, And that parameter just takes HTML and then just shoves it in a headless browser and renders it. Um, and so obviously, um, you know, there's not too much <laughs> to poke around there for, for XSS, right? You can pretty easily, you know, inject your HTML tag, see it in the responses. That's part of the intended functionality. And then from there, you know, either using on event handlers or script tags in our scenario, the script tags work just fine um, to go ahead and, and uh, execute JavaScript and then try to get a callback on your server. Um, so, you know, he hit me up. He's like, man, I cannot get any 
anything of impact here because, you know, at the end of the day, an SSRF is great, but if the whole premise of SSRF is that you're, you're pivoting into an internal network. And a lot of times when you get an SSRF, you have to prove to the triager, to the, the company, um, that you are able to hit an internal asset, whether it be local host, uh, or, um, the good old AWS metadata instance, for those of you that don't know about that, if you're, if you're, um, if your vulnerable server is on AWS, there's this magical endpoint that all of us hackers love, um, 169.254.169.254. I'll never forget that address, um, <laughs> where you can hit hit that address and it'll dump back the AWS creds for the uh, role associated with that EC2 um, server, um, which is just phenomenal. And then you just kind of dump those into the command line and, and just log into their AWS account. Um, so that's, that's phenomenal. Um, but you know, in this scenario, he was having trouble finding exactly where we could hit the, uh, you know, what kind of internal server we could hit, um, wasn't much hosted on local host, um, couldn't hit any internal servers. And, but here's the crazy thing. It was on AWS, right? So it was like, it was like, man, we should be able to do this. But when he dropped the, um, the, uh, AWS URL into like an iframe or something like that to pull the data back, it was, it was not having it. Um, mm -hmm. so he hit me up and I'm like, all right, like, what are we going to do here? We can't, our time frame was pretty short. We didn't really have a lot of time to do any crazy DNS rebinding for those, for those of you that aren't familiar with with DNS rebinding, um, DNS rebinding is a technique where um, you take a domain name and you abuse the time to live on a DNS record uh, to rebind the uh, host name, the, D the domain name to a different IP address. So um, for example, you hit it with an SSRF. The first time it resolves the, the host, it resolves to you know public IP address, your server, totally fine. And the second time it resolves the IP address, um, it hits, uh, you know, a local, a local server. Um, and that's, that's a common technique. Um, so yeah, so with, with that, you know, we didn't have, but that, that technique takes time in modern browsers because, uh, Chrome just sort of ignores that time to live, excuse me, uh, time to live on a DNS record. And so it just kind of adds, it just says five minutes. It's gotta be five minutes. And we didn't have that long in the headless browser before the requested timeout. Um, so we were looking around for uh, these other techniques and Joel, I'm gonna hold on. I wanna send you this link really quickly. This thing is- It's funny that you mentioned that because I know like all the time when I'm making new DNS records and stuff, if I ever like make a mistake yeah. and I'm like, and I've tested it once before, like I, it always seems like it takes forever in Chrome, even if your, your TTL is it's wrong. It's the worst, because, man. Like, Chrome ignores it. It does whatever. They yeah, do they whatever just they do whatever want. the heck they want, and they've got enough of the you know browser market where they can just be like, yeah, you know what? We're just gonna <laughs> screw with that. Anyway, yeah. I just sent you that link, What's dude. TV this else? is so funny. Yeah. If you look at this link, um, so this this guy Robert MD, I'm just gonna give him a, a shout out right here. Is such a badass. He comments on NCC Group Singularity Tool, which is a DNS rebinding tool, one of the like top DNS rebinding tool. He's like, dude, why don't we just um. You know, I just kind of, I'm reading this and I kind of get the vibes of like, dude, why are we trying to make this so hard? Like, why don't we just, instead of abusing the TTL on the DNS record, why don't we just have two IP addresses for one A record? And if the first IP address fails, it'll automatically fall back to the second record. And I read this and I was like, there's no way that this works, right? Like that would just be too easy. 
Um, and and if as you look through this this freaking GitHub issue, everyone's like, yeah, dude, this isn't gonna work, man. And then he just drops like he's like, this is the POC, it works. And then and just like drops a, a GitHub gist like a total badass. So, <laughs> excuse me, getting over a cold here. Um, so yeah, I I realized that, and I was like, dang, uh, we gotta like check this out. Um, and. Uh, I recently switched uh, from running Ubuntu as my main OS to running Windows and then using Windows Substitute for Linux. Um, and so I go to check, test this out and it works. And I'm like, what? Like, are we all just idiots? And Robert MD is like the shit? Like, um, and and it turns out, you know, this, this uh, is a... a type of um, DNS rebinding known as multi-A rebinding. And it only works um, in Windows, which mm-hmm. is a little bit of a bummer, but, you know, c'est la vie. However, it works really, really well <laughs> in Windows. It, mm-hmm. it rebinds super quickly. Um, and so let me, just, let me just back up real quick, and I'll, I'll walk you through the, the actual tech vector, all right? Yeah, it's actually really interesting that it's a Windows-only thing, because I, um, I know, like, when I was learning about, like, DNS back in college, mm-hmm. like, that they were teaching like you know set multiple a records and all that kind of stuff yeah. and like they they're they always have like fallbacks and stuff like even with dns there's like multiple dns servers and all that kind of stuff and it's kind of interesting to like wonder how that kind of like how the fallbacks actually work and like where they're respected yeah i expect that like windows would be i mean usually i would expect windows to be the outlier where it's not right respecting that type of behavior and everybody else would yeah so i think i think it's mostly like a chrome on or like Chrome on Windows sort of vibe, or but actually, you know what? It affects other browsers too. I think it affects Firefox and and other browsers running on. I'm trying to look at. Let me pull up this uh, this issue again. Yeah, he said it. He he said it works on Firefox, Chrome, Firefox, Chrome, and Edge on Windows. So I mean, Edge and Chrome obviously are running both running Chromium, but it does work on Firefox as well, which makes me think it's like a you know Windows DNS internals sort of sort of problem. Um, hmm. But but yeah, so I mean, pretty much how it works is you've got uh, you've got this page you you load up, um, and when you when you load up the page, uh, it it you know obviously the the computer has to resolve the DNS record, so it, it resolves to uh, your server, and that DNS record that it resolves has two two A records in there. The first one goes to your server. The second one goes to uh, you know, your private server. And when Windows loads it up, um, it's going to take the priority um, that you you set it as. So if it, if the first one's your server and the second one's localhost, it's going to it's gonna respect that. Other, other systems, um, Linux and I believe Mac as well, um, they will not do that. They will look and say uh, they're going to prioritize the localhost instance or, or the local IP in, instance. Um, so if you've got like, you know, localhost is one of them, then it'll, it'll just load localhost and it'll never hit the attacker server. I see. That actually makes sense. Cause then if you're like developing locally, it would hit your local server instead of using the built-in. Router. Yeah. And it kind of makes sense as well from like an internal networking perspective, like corporate networking. Right. Yeah. So if you've got, it, it'll also prioritize like a 10 dot, you know, uh, IP yeah. address. Like my networking switch does this automatically. Like, but I think like this is probably to like try and skip that step where yeah. like if i hit my public ip from from 
home. Oh, yeah. Then it actually just routes internally. Like, it doesn't actually ever leave. Oh, dang, that's like pretty it, cool. The router will, yeah, just, the router just handles it. Like, if you look on your web server, like, internally, the request will be coming from your internal IP address, not from, like, an external. Dude, I, 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 gotta, I gotta work on my home lab. I feel like every time I talk <laughs> to you, Joel, you have, like, this sick home lab set up, and you're like, look <laughs> at this, like, crazy automation I have to, like, run all my lights, and what, what, is, what was the name of that, like, system that you had? in place that you, home assistant yeah home assistant you had like so much shit hooked up to home assistant and yeah dude home assistant is i'm awesome. jealous man you know i'm running everything off of uh you know google google homes and and it, and it works well but like i don't know it seems like you got some crazy shit set up so that's pretty cool i mean i still do a lot of it through HomeKit, yeah. but all of the sharing to HomeKit comes from home assistant nice. so all right well maybe we'll have to do a different episode on joel's yeah, like yeah, super yeah. badass home automation setup <laughs> But um, anyway, so the DNS record, it resolves and uh, it resolves to the attacker's IP address. Then, you know, you've got that page loaded up in the browser. You've got JavaScript on that. You've got control of that page. Then pops open another iframe to the same domain, right? Um, this time when the browser uh, tries to reach out to your server, right? It's cached, right? Um, you, the server will not respond. The server will kill itself. <laughs> um, and then when the browser realizes that it's unable to access the server at that IP, it will reach out to the second IP, um, in this case, localhost, and load that up. Now, because you've got you know, your other page open and you've got this new page that is localhost but still resolves to the domain um, uh, open, now we can reach across the iframes uh, because it's the same origin and uh and pull whatever content we've got out um so that that is the whole concept behind um this this rebind multi-a uh tool or sort of technique and then i i kind of built a built a little tool around it um mm. yeah so the ttl is per record right so what do you set the ttl for like when you have multiple ips it's still just like the lowest ttl well you know the the ttl in this scenario it, it actually isn't ever used right because chrome just disses you anyway this is going to throw that away um you know normally with with uh, uh you know traditional dns rebinding you'd want to set the ttl to zero making sure that it it refreshes it every single time but in this one it can cache it and it still doesn't matter which is pretty cool um so yeah, this is, I guess I'll go ahead and like make this repo not private now. Um, but essentially uh, I'll be releasing with the with this podcast, um, the the tool called uh, Rebind Multi-A. You can find it on my GitHub, github.com slash renderator slash Rebind Multi-A. And I was gonna write a blog post with it. I'm not sure I'm gonna write a blog post with it because I wrote a pretty good readme on it. So um, yeah, just go read the readme if you didn't understand my uh, you know, explanation here interrupted with my admiration for Joel's home setup. <laughs> um, and we'll put a link for that down below. Yeah, we'll, too, don't we'll, worry we'll drop that in the description. Um, but yeah, so essentially I took a lot of inspiration for this from uh, an, another awesome tool um, by uh, Brandon Dorsey, who now, uh, or Rebind Network. Have you, have you, you, you used Rebind Network, right, Joel? I think so, but um, run me yeah, through. Yeah, so it. It, we'll we'll go over it a little bit a little bit later. Um, I'm actually going to talk about it a good bit in the in the bug bounty tip section. But it's this concept of like you, it dynamically responds. Uh, you know, dynamically. How am I, how am I going to say this? Yeah, so it you know you can build a DNS record that programs how it's going to respond. 
Um, yes. Okay. I do. I have used yeah. It's such a great tool. And I, I'm really appreciate the fact that he like hosted infrastructure for it. Um, you know, he, he put it, just put it on a server and, and used rebind network. And so rebind.network, you know, to do that. So, um, took a lot of inspiration from that. So I built a tool rebindmultia.com. Um, this is, you know, you guys can go out there and just use this. Um, the concept behind this is, you, I mean, you still need your own VPS, so you're going to have to go and get, um, you know, your VPS spun up because obviously you've got to host your payload, um, to do the theft of the data that you need. Um, but the concept should be, uh, you just, you create a, a, a record, um, uh, when you run the rebind multi-A tool on your VPS and it'll, it'll respond with, uh, a pay. So it'll create a DNS server and two HTTP servers. Um, the DNS server is going to handle um, the whole DNS response part of the equation. And then the server will handle the uh, one HTTP server will handle loading the malicious page and then killing itself when uh, the other, when the second request reaches it um, in order to, you know, make it fall back to the other IP. And then the, the last HTTP server, the second HTTP server will, uh, handle fetching the, you know, handling the data, exfiltrating the data from the, the, the browser. So, um, the, the target or the actual, um, DNS record looks like something along the lines of 127.0.0.1.target. So that's, that's the target that you're, you're shooting for. And then you're going to put your VPS's IP in here. Um, in the example on the readme, I've got, uh, one, three, six, one three dot one three three dot one three three dot three seven of course you know gotta be elite uh dot ns dot rebind multi a dot com so then the authoritative name server for that is is um going to default to whatever you put in after the ns in the record um that's going to be your vps and then your vps will kind of take it from there and do the whole um exploitation so yeah this reminds me a lot of um can't remember the name of the tool but there was a tool like very similar to this for like redirects and like um different like response codes and you could basically like tell it like respond with like any response code mm. or like you can put like um you know do a 302 to this specific url or whatever and um i think you could both do it directly like through all through the domain as well nice. as through like domain and paths um and it was like very similar to this where you basically just like give it like a single like domain it's meant to look like legit ish yeah. you know like yeah. like if you can only feed it like a domain then you know you can sort of like you know still get your way around that um and uh, yeah i really like the concept of these kinds of tools because it just makes it really accessible to like everybody yeah it's so much better i, I didn't actually know about that tool so i'm gonna have to get maybe we gotta find that one I, yeah i gotta try and find it it was i used it ages ago that's awesome and and so like the way that i'm doing that right now is just a bunch of like super scrappy uh, you know, PHP files in my web server with all these different types of like, I've got like reader 308.php and reader 307.php. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's a good, I mean, that, that's a good bug bounty tip right there is like when you're, when you're looking for, um, you know, when you're trying to see if you can, uh, force a, uh, SSRF to follow redirects, definitely try all the different redirect types, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think the first time I heard that tip, I was at a live hacking event and Mark Litchfield was like, he comes up to me. He's like, dude, this is nuts. Like I had, I had this SSRF. I was trying to exploit it forever. I couldn't get anything. 
And then I tried a 301 instead of a 302 and it worked. And I was like, are you serious? Wow, like, what, what does the code even look for that? Look like for that on the server side? Like, it's, so funny. it's weird, man. Super weird. Um, but yeah, so that's, I mean, that's the, that's the, uh, that's the, the tool. So definitely enjoy that. Let me know your thoughts on that. You can, uh, you can hit us up, uh, via Twitter at CTBB podcast, um, or info at critical thinking podcast.io. Um, or you can just DM me <laughs> that works too. <laughs> DMs are open. Nice. Um, I will say you have to use Python 3.7. Uh, because it it uses a library that's in there, so you might have to work some pi env magic. I don't know how to actually say that. Um, yeah, that's that's what it should be like. Um, all right, let's see what do we what else do we want to talk about next, Joel? What do we got on here? Uh, let's see. So we can talk about. Um, do you want me to sort of go through it, or we can? We can uh, we can talk about sort of the RCE. Ah, yeah. Let's let's talk about some. So yeah, that's another approach, right? So hit hit them with the RCE and the headless browser sort of sort of feel. Yeah, sure. So this is actually something that I use for more than just headless browsers. Like I'll use this on like um, hardware devices that are running like Android or have like a Chromium instance or something like that. Um, a lot of the times, it's a really easy vector to just find a POC for an RCE within. Uh, you know, either v, the V8 JavaScript engine or um, Chromium itself or any of the like Chrome, you know, web services and anything like that. Um, and just like throw JavaScript POC at it and see if it crashes. Because mm. um, a lot of the times programs will just accept that as is as well. Mm. Like you don't have to like go like all, you don't have to write a binary exploitation payload. You can just be like, hey, I crashed the browser with this valid POC for, you know, a version newer than this and they'll take yeah, it yeah dude um, that's that's super badass man i know i know alex chapman uh at a i'm trying to not disclose too much information here but at some <laughs> point he has done something similar to that um and it just absolutely freaking blew my mind but he actually went the full way and like wrote out the whole like shell code and stuff like that you know exploding like a like a, a type um type confusion or something like that in v8 is super badass super cool yeah. yeah so i mean all that stuff is public right so um just go to like the chromium um disclose bugs page mm. i think you could just google it but um i'm not gonna read the url but yeah you can definitely just google like chrome i'll like, drop it in the description bugs. yeah it'll be in the description somewhere and they have like a list of basically just like you can go view the actual like bug that was filed by like the researcher includes the poc files it includes like their automated bot that like retests it automatically and all that kind of stuff oh like, dang um, that's pretty cool you know, yeah it's really it's really cool so you have like definitely a lot of visibility into like basically like how this stuff is working and then you can just go download it yourself and test it locally and just like you know try it out and see if it works mm. um so yeah that's always like a really great thing like when you're messing with browsers in general yeah. not even just like headless ones but you know headless ones too but just browsers in general it's an old browser Try and crash it. Try and RCE it because mm. these uh, the JavaScript engines that run um, within the browsers are like very complicated. So it, it's really easy for there to be type confusions and like lots of like minor little things that turn into big bugs like happen all the time within the JavaScript engine. And that's like a perfect exploit path because it's JavaScript, right? Like if you can run JavaScript, then 
you have an exploit path, right? So that's like always a really good vector. Awesome. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I feel like that is an attack vector that's a little bit um, separated from the bug bounty community mostly, right? Because like, I mean, obviously there's bug bounty for Chromium, but like browser exploitation, as far as like actually exploiting the browser as an executable, as a, as a piece of, as a program is not something that we talk about very much in bug bounty because a lot of the time we're thinking about the attack vectors for web applications, um, you know, attacking web servers, or if we are attacking the browser, you know, using that to leak information about a current user authenticated on the site or something like that. So definitely, definitely yeah. a cool piece of, uh, of attack, attack scope there. Yeah. I think you'll find that like V8 and JavaScript, it's one of those um, like JavaScript engine stuff. It's like one of those fields where like, generally the people who are like finding a lot of the bugs and like doing a lot of like the really cool research are people who've been doing it for like a long time and are like already super familiar with like this weird complex system that like is the javascript engine and so like it when you're coming into it new like there was a point in time where i was doing a lot of research around like javascript engines and that kind of stuff and like there's just so much knowledge that you have like you have to like catch up on when you're like jumping into that because like there's just like it's a mess of code it's like a huge code base and you just have to like try, try and sort out like oh how does like var i equals zero like what what is that like that gets like handled by like c basically right. you know like it's like yeah so it's it's very abstract it's 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 really cool though yeah, if you ever it's, have time to, it's like, a little intimidating it. to to start off researching to be perfectly honest like I've definitely wanted to go down that path before especially because like you said it helps you pop IOT devices too you know, if you've got an IoT yeah. device that's like a couple patch cycles behind or something like that, it can be really helpful to like just pop the browser and then get RCE on it and dump the firmware or whatever. Um, but yeah, pretty pretty yeah, pretty scary. Sure. But it is doable. I mean, we've seen people do it. You know, um, so <laughs> every year at Pondo. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> um, well, cool. So that's that's the RCE inside of the headless browser. Um, so that's that's another approach you could take. So bringing it all back around, you've got your headless browser. If you see a headless browser, if you see like a PDF generator or something like that in your um, in your scope, definitely you know poke around at it quite a bit because there's a lot of attack vectors you can go with for that. And I'm actually going to jump back a little bit to talk about headless browser um, exploitation a little bit more in depth here. Like you mentioned, Nahamsek has a a really awesome talk. I want to say it was in 2019 about. Um, essentially how to get LFI through headless browsers. And there's some crazy stuff in there um, about uh, like using a link tag to uh, embed a file in in the rendering uh, or of that PDF that happens. And it's like, dang, why does this even work? But it, it did. Um, and I think a lot it's of this stuff is dependent on the on the, you know, on the software that's being used to render this, right? Right. And that's why I like recommended, like, if you can like poke around a little bit and try and like identify, like start with just like, you know, HTML and like those types of things, just your basic like fuzzing of fields and see what types of output you get. And then like start searching for like the abnormalities mm. and see if you can hit, get a hit like on a GitHub issue or somebody like, you know, posting yeah. something that mentions what software. Oh, I'm experiencing this weird issue with this software like you know that happens all the time where somebody's like legitimately trying to use it and they like encounter the same kind of problem yeah, go go read like, the github you know, issues man yeah. that's the takeaway yeah. from the day go is read, like yeah. you might find the next robert md who's just like this is stupid <laughs> so go read the github issues exactly yeah 
And it, and if you look at the other one that I had here, uh, Joel was like this this write up by Jonathan Bowman, who's a stellar hacker. Love love working with him at live hacking events. Um, and essentially, he he and this is another shout out to the specific. You know, go and figure out exactly what is rendering your your PDF. You know, in this scenario, it was MPDF. Uh, you know, a specific library. And as he was reading through the docs for this, he found a way to um, include a specific file in it with, you know, with an annotation tag. And, you know, you're probably not going to have success doing exactly this, but it's important for you to look, it's important for us all to look at the methodology here and say like, you know, how far he went down that path, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's It's definitely, you know, not as sexy sometimes to go in there and read the documentation and like just get super deep and that sort of thing. But you really see some crazy volumes pop out of that. Well, that was the other thing I was going to mention when we were talking about like all the, the weird DNS behavior is like, I think like a lot of these complex systems, like one big takeaway is like, there's almost always like a documentation related bug where like there's something that is like literally documented mm. as expected behavior. And it's, not not like okay it, it's not yeah, right exactly not okay exactly like it's like bad behavior that is intended and they've just been like yeah this is how this is supposed to work but when you come at it from the attacker's mindset then you like you know you can use that in malicious ways whether it be like oh we're just rendering this page we give it an image url and it puts it in the page mm. and it's like yeah but you can give it any url right something like that right so um just go read the docs right read the docs read the issues like figure out people are like using this and just like, you'll definitely find something like strange in there that, to look Absolutely. at. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think that's such a valuable, t you know, it, I, I dumped that tip on almost every one of those, like, give me a random bug bounty tip, you know, Twitter feeds is like, read yeah. the freaking docs. And I think, I think NT, I actually didn't get the chance to see it, but NT, I think did a, uh, a talk recently on like, just go read the freaking RFC. And that has literally never not paid off for me, sitting down and reading the RFC. So that's another another fire fire one there yeah for sure. um the only other thing joel that i had in this uh you know section about headless uh browser ssrf sort of exploitation was this piece on uh and this is kind of sort of like a last resort right we don't really want to resort to this but at the end of the day they will still give you a medium on an ssrf if you can do internal port scanning with it most of the time um and there is this cool tool by some guy named Avilium. I'm sorry, I found I didn't pronounce that correctly, but that's what it is. And uh, it's actually a uh, web um, web assembly port scanner um, that you can just run in your browser. And I, you know, before we ran this, I or before we did this podcast, I tried to spin this up and try to get it to work, and I couldn't get it to work. And I, I, you know, put it, put an issue out there, and he's like, "Yeah, dude, it works." And, and so I was like, okay, all right. And it very well could be like some weird networking that's happening with WSL. Um, that definitely does happen, but he swears up and down that it works and it seems pretty badass. Mm -hmm. So definitely something to check out if you're in a situation where you can, uh, you know, where you need to prove internal port scanning or something like yeah, WebAssembly is one of those things that I think is like, it's like a secret hidden little, you know, that's going to come get oh, us yeah. soon. You know what I mean? Because like, I think that not a lot of people are really looking at that. Yeah. And like, there's a lot of stuff that seems kind of like 
wild yeah. i mean i've seen like people like you compile doom and like run it in the oh browser gosh, and stuff like that nuts, you know what dude. i mean so it's like the levels the levels are pretty like we're i think we're already like there people just need to like figure out how to use yeah it, and, and this seems like a good use and case. to your previous point you know this uh web assembly is something that's used fairly often i think in in exploitation of uh those rcs that we were talking about earlier you know you've got to have a pretty good grip on that um which is once again just another another arena of deep dive you need to do to be able to fully exploit these things but i do think it would be really interesting to to and i, I want to say like i bookmarked if i find it you know before we release the show i'll drop it in the show notes but i want to say i i bookmarked a uh a talk that someone did or maybe like a a uh, blog post that someone did not too long ago about like how to get into browser bugs for noobs, essentially. <laughs> yeah. That is a really yeah, high Yeah, I actually value. do have some yeah. things bookmarked here. I'll send you some links. Yeah, do shoot them over. And actually, yeah, I found it actually. Jack Hallen, um, he says, today I'm releasing a uh, three-part browser exploitation series on Chrome. And I started looking into this dude and it's really interesting stuff he writes up. Highly recommend um, checking out his blog. So I'll drop this. I'll drop this in the uh, in the description as well for the for the episode. But um, awesome. yeah, just getting a cursory understanding of what all of that looks like, I think, would be really helpful, even for web hunters, because you do run into these situations where you're hitting an IoT device or you're, you know, hitting in a headless browser, where this could be really helpful. Yeah, for sure, dude. And make sure to send me that link as well, actually. Uh, yeah, I want to give that a read. I gotcha. I'll drop it in the chat right now. Um, all right. <clears throat> Sorry for the for the coughing in the mic. <laughs> oh, dude. I just, dude, this cold has held on for so freaking long, man. Like it's been so annoying. It's that time of year, you know. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right. I think that's all we had on content for headless browser SSRFs. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Not that I, not that I can come up with off the top of my head. Um, so yeah, now it's time for everybody's favorite segment, which is like random bug bounty tips slash interesting stuff to talk about. Um, so yeah, I guess I'll, I'll go ahead and start us off with the one with the cool one from Lupin. Yeah. Does that work? Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. Okay. So I want to say, I want to say it was Vegas that I talked to Lupin about this over like pancakes at the what, what is the name of that of the hotel in vegas with like the the giant pyramid on oh luxor, uh, the, luxor. the luxor yeah that yeah. was it we were in the luxor and we were at like this breakfast place and we we're just sitting down and talking about like headless browser ssrf and like stuff as we do um and he dropped this fire tip which i ended up using in a headless browser ssrf exploitation um not too long ago which was um you know, a lot of times in these sort of scenarios, you have a, a certain time frame where you have to uh, get your payload off, you know, in like three seconds or something, or the HTTP request times out or something like that, right? And so, of course, you know, in those scenarios, first thing that comes to your head is like, okay, well, I'll just stall the HTTP response, right? You know, I'll just write a little PHP code, you know, return sleep or whatever, and, and then just, you know, return an empty file or whatever on an image tag. Um, and that works fine and will probably buy you like a couple seconds or whatever, but there's a different timeout. He told me on, um, loading the body of HTTP responses. Um, and so if you go ahead and you respond with the headers, um, you know, a 200 response and you give it a content length of one, and then you don't respond with anything else, 
it there's a different timeout value on how long it will wait for uh, the body of that HTTP response to be kicked back versus uh, you know the actual just HTTP response itself, which I thought was really interesting. Mm. Yeah, that's actually really that's a really good tip um, because if you think about like like you mentioned, there's like different timeouts like along the way. There's like the connection timeout. There's like the HTTP timeout. Right, right. There's like you know all different timeouts like at different places and they might not actually be defined the same way and also they start at different points right yeah. so that's a good point um, actually i wonder if it would be most efficient to try to like optimize all of those timeouts and say something like okay we're going to stall the tcp connection for like you know if the limit's three mm -hmm. seconds like 2.9 yeah, seconds as much as you can. Yeah. yeah and then and then do that at each step along the way stall the http response for like five seconds stall the HTTP response body for like, you know, however long. Um, but yeah, so if you ever need to buy yourself some extra time in a, in that sort of headless browser context, you can definitely use that. Um, yeah, just empty body content length one. Exactly. And then, you know, you'll do whatever you're, whatever else, you know, you're doing in JavaScript on a different part of the page. So that's, that's a pretty yeah. cool one. I think it bought me like 15 seconds. Uh, it went from yeah, like 1.5 seconds to 15 seconds when I tried it. Um, so that's pretty badass. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, another one is like um, Chrome is like super like good at talking to other like Chrome instances. Mm. You know what I mean? Like Chromium and all those kinds of things. So like um, there's a there's a thing called Chrome Inspect, um, Chrome colon slash slash in Inspect. Mm. And this plays with like a lot of other things like um, the, the remote debugging stuff. And I'll let you talk about that in a sec. But like with the Inspect page, you can like, um, for example, if you have an Android device and you have a web view on that Android device, plug it in to your computer, you open Chrome inspect, you can interact with the JavaScript console on that page on the device, like over USB from your computer. Dang, dude. And you can like, you know, inspect element, you can look through the HTML, you can do all that kind of stuff if your phone's in debug mode. So um, that's like a really, really useful tool if you're trying to like debug, like, oh, what does this page have access to? Or like, uh, what is, where, where is my code like being rendered on this web view or whatever, you know, you, like you can take a little closer look if you just plug your phone dude up. that would be hella helpful for like trying to enumerate those um like special js handlers that you have sometimes in like mobile app web views or something like yeah. that i don't know if it works in yeah, web i use views. it to build my payload all the time actually oh really like what yeah yeah because it's just way easier like you just open up the page you don't have to like get your whole dude, exploit all dude, the way you open that's the page game changer, your man. Computer, start testing your payload until it does what you want and then you just figure out how to, how to inject that payload Dang, I gotta I gotta test that out sometime. I, I wish I, I've been working on um I don't know, I guess I'll say just a certain IoT device and I, I freaking cannot get this thing to get into debug mode where I can get any sort of like access to the JavaScript console on it. So I, I also think it would be really cool. I don't know if this tool is out there. I'm sure it does with like some of the OG I wanna say there was a tool that like would drop a JavaScript shell back to you. But I think it'd be so helpful to just be able to load up a page, right? And then like have another page that it connects to maybe via like WebSockets or even like just a command line thing where you could just run interactive JavaScript when you don't have access to the inspect console. And you're reminding me, I saw a tweet. Isn't there something about that? I feel like there was. Yeah, I saw a tweet like yesterday. Called, oh yeah, here we go. Broadcast channel. I'm going to send this to you on. on uh, what is what? broadcast channel? Yeah, I think this is a new JavaScript API. Oh dang, that sounds that sounds. Uh, but it's like cross, it's cross window, like cross tab, like 
okay, that's my jam right now. So definitely send that to me. I've been studying recently, like all the different ways you can, uh, you know, reach across various JavaScript, you know, reach like into the iframe. You can do it via post messages. You can do all sorts of crazy stuff. What the heck? I know, right? Dude, you're just dropping me on this, dropping this on me in the middle of a podcast. Like, what the yeah. heck? <laughs> I know. I saw that this morning on. Okay, Twitter. dude, we like, gotta wrap what? this up. I can go read this. Um, all right, that's fire. So we'll leave that in the we'll leave that in the the description as well. I wonder if this can be used for. I wonder if this is specific use cases or if this can actually just broadcast to. Uh, if you can, because really one of the problems that I've been trying to solve is like, how do I get and this is especially relevant in this modern day of like, uh, you know, same site cookies and and that sort of thing where you have to do top level navigation. How do I get access to a tab that I didn't open um, to mm. send it like a post message or something like that? Because if I could do that, it would be really helpful for a lot of bugs. So this actually looks super promising. I'm definitely going to check this out. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder if you just have to like open that channel or if you could like brute force it or maybe if there's a default channel. Yeah, dude. Some, probably some interesting things to look into. Yeah, that. no, there's definitely going to be vulns here, right? Because it says it looks like in I'm just, you know, looking at a cursory glance at it, but it looks like they just, you know, define a static broadcast channel. So if you have a static, you know, if, if it's not something that's being dynamically generated, you can just send messages into that. Mm, yeah, yeah, it looks like it. I definitely got to mess with this. Okay. Oh, dude, and I just <laughs> okay. pulled up the MDN on it. It's it's supported across all of all of the browsers already. Oh, Sick, really, dude? Dude. All right, we're gonna we're gonna poke at that. All right, extra. That was an extra bug bounty tip for you today. Yeah, a little extra one. Don't there. you know? Don't snipe our bugs. Don't go find uh, all the bugs yeah. in that uh, before we do. Um. Um. Obviously, who now that you mentioned? Yeah. So by Brandon Dorsey. By Brandon Dorsey. That's like a great tool for dns rebinding it's just like all in the domain record itself you just like chain it all together with dots and you have like one big like subdomain chain that explains like how your dns rebind works super useful yeah. who now no, that one that one's crazy useful i use this one all the time um it's so nice that he just hosted it and like you don't have to worry about it but i did at some point um because i need to do some modifications to it i did uh spin up my own one my own you know version of who now and it's super easy to do. So don't let that intimidate you either. Um, you know, mm. I hadn't worked a lot with uh, DNS protocol before screwing around with this and, and one of the tools I'll mention in just a second. Um, and so definitely don't shy away from that. It'll it'll help you grow. And it's actually not not super tricky. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess I'll keep it on that same vein. The next one that I had here that I wanted to drop as a, as a, as a tip was DNS chef and actually Mr. Tux racer shout out to Julian there um, gave me, showed me this a while back. Um, but this is a great way. And this is helpful in so many contexts It's helpful in IoT. Yeah, I just opened this up and I already had the repo store. Yeah. I did, yeah <laughs> nice. Yeah. I, I, um, I used this all the time for creating fake uh, DNS records um, and, and sort of proxying through. And it's really great because like, for example, if you can set, your router to have a, a default DNS um, and then push that to an IoT device, right? When it connects to your router, then um, when that you can snipe specific uh, DNS records, right? So it you know set your VPS as the default DNS server, 
And then it'll proxy every record that's not the specific record that you talk about to like 8.8.8.8 or something like that. And then it will allow you to override a specific record, which can allow you mm. to inject yourself into some pretty baller situations when you're writing exploits. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah, I do a similar thing. And I know we've talked about this with IoT devices where um, you can force a, a, a web view to pop up with captive portals. Right? Ah, so yeah. Captive portals, you go, to, you go to Starbucks, you connect to their Wi-Fi, you got to check the box, right? The little thing that pops up, you got to check the box and agree and click agree, right? Before you get internet access. Yeah. Well, that's called a captive portal, right? And so like most devices support that. Like it's just part of normal like, inter, uh, like Wi-Fi stuff, right? So like on an IoT device, you just give it your own captive portal. You force it to open the captive portal and it will open a web view that you can run JavaScript in and you can, you know, it's like, yeah. Freaking Joel is like dropping all of these bug bounty tips that are not in our notes. And I'm like, <laughs> dude, like I sit here and I like script out my notes. I was like, oh, I'll drop this tip or that tip. And then Joel has like literally no notes here and just like drops these fire. Oh my Roll gosh, out of bed. That, that's nuts. <laughs> Definitely check that out. Definitely helpful. Joel told me about that technique uh, a while back and I used it on an IoT device and it worked quite well. So definitely don't forget that one. And I, I, dude, I think that's such a valuable, I think that's such a valuable piece about cybersecurity content like this, right? Because it's like, you know, if you just like, that's pretty creative, you know, the, the captive portal. And if you just kind of get that in your head as a possible attack vector, as a possible, um, you know, beginning of an attack or something like that, you never know when that's going to pop up and when you're going to use it and how it's going to make you grow as an, an attacker to think like that. So I love that. Yeah. All right. Um, oh, yeah. So you kind of touched on Dev Chrome, uh, uh, Chrome DevTools protocol a little bit, but I actually wanted to talk this out. This is not necessarily a bug bounty tip, more of it's like, please go hack this, everybody who listens to this podcast, because it seems really like interesting scope. So I was looking at this and I feel like um, this is something that I have not tried very much in the context of uh, headless browser situations because I'd imagine this dev tools protocol is open on a lot of these headless browsers because there's got to be some way for them to orchestrate that headless browser, right? Um, so definitely check out dev, uh, dev tools protocol. There's a When you instantiate headless Chrome, there's a remote or dash dash remote debugging port um, parameter that you can put in to enable remote debugging on on the Chromium instance. And it opens up some really interesting endpoints. Um, obviously, this one that I'm about to highlight is kind of like a semi-vulnerability that I found, but it's not really a vulnerability. And what it is is, you know how like browsers have a limitation on, on like pop-ups and you can't like mm -hmm. pop up like, you know, eight kajillion tabs, uh, you know, with one root. If you hit, if you uh, open up, um, remote debugging port and you hit slash localhost slash json slash new and you give it as a as a query parameter you give it a url it will open up a tab and then it will open up another tab with that url you defined right and so you can pop up two tabs with and one that you control and one that has a parent or, or an opener relationship um with this slash json slash new and so that allows you to circumvent some of the pop-up stuff, which I think is pretty cool. Um, and then there's, you know, obviously the Chromium code is open open source, so you can go read through it. And I was just looking at the way that it handles HTTP requests and such. Looks like there's a really ripe um, attack surface there. So definitely if anyone's feeling up to it, go poke at that. Could provide some some cool 
attack surface. And I was just kind of perusing through the Chromium uh, disclosed bugs, like you mentioned before, Joel. And they do pay for bugs in that. Um, so yeah, man, go get a universal XSS. That would be <laughs> sick, dude. That'd be so cool. And the, and the other thing is, if you can leak, it, you know, if you can figure out how to leak the um, GUID for these inspect so because you know what, what it's talking about the, the purpose of this is to be able to do remote kind of like what you were talking about before joel i imagine yeah it's exactly the same yeah. thing actually yeah so if you open the chrome inspect tab and you look at like there's actually a button in there that says like um it says like discover network targets and if you click configure it shows like you know localhost port 9222 9229 right so the, there's like default set in there for um like picking up those remote debugging instances and it's the exact same thing it's just that with android you put your phone on debug mode and you plug it in over usb it'll do all the the same things as it would with a remote target wow okay yeah i'm looking at that now that's okay that makes so much sense so you know then then you have that remote debugging um accessible and if you can get the guid the correct url for that then you can control that page and you can run arbitrary javascript on that page which would result in in universal xss Really cool attack surface there. Definitely check it out if anybody's into um, sort of fringe browser uh, exploitation. Because for me, you know, as a web hacker, getting into all that V8 stuff and and a lot of dealing with a lot of um, you know stuff I'm not familiar with, a little intimidating. But dealing with a you know localhost API is a lot less scary. So I think I'm going to dig around yeah. a little bit there, and I hope you guys go and and find something interesting there as well. That's yeah, good research. For sure. Awesome. All right, man. I think that's a wrap. I don't know. You got anything else you want to mention on this episode? I think that's it for now. All right. Sweet. Awesome. Well, thanks everyone for listening. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see you next time. Yeah. Peace. peace.